Facebook, population 3 billion worldwide, is now viewed by some as a new kind of nation. And that's a responsibility that Mark Zuckerberg probably never wanted. Welcome to the Illusion of More podcast. I'm David Newhoff, and today we're talking about ethics and social media platform governance. In February, legal scholar and journalist Kate Klonick wrote an expose for The New Yorker about Facebook's oversight board, which some have dubbed the platform's Supreme Court. The board is supposed to have authority, even over Zuckerberg, to determine what material should remain on the platform. I'd recommend reading Klonick's article, but to discuss some of the issues and questions it raises, I invited an old friend of mine to the podcast. He used to be just Mike to me, but now he is a newly minted PhD, and as Dr. Michael Cattell, he works in the public policy program at the Alan Turing Institute in London. To get things started, Mike, I, I want to give uh, listeners a, some context for your expertise in your area of study. So is it is it accurate to say that your primary focus is working to establish parameters for the ethical use of artificial intelligence, or is or is that too narrow or too broad? That is definitely the focus of my current work. So right now with the Turing uh, Institute, my, my role is to look at how digital technologies are being adopted by government ministries and to help develop ethical guidance on how those are used. But um, generally my research is about the intersection of digital technologies and human well-being in general. And I have a particular emphasis Welcome, on Dr. Cattell. Um, artificial intelligence so Mike, I'd like and to begin. Uh, social power. I'm particularly focused on uh, the assumptions behind the use of certain technologies and like who stands to gain the most by committing to those assumptions versus some alternative assumptions. So um, for example, like one of the things I've written about is uh, when employers use artificial intelligence as part of um, job screening and they use to, uh, tools that like detect a person's heart rate and reads their facial expressions and so on and then builds personality profiles about them for use in selecting employees and the question i ask there is not wh whether or not these systems are like are accurate um, but more about like who wins and loses by using this this and in particular right. who amasses right. power and who potentially is ceding power by the use of a technology like that. So I'm really focused on that kind of issue of the power dynamics involved in technology, in particular, artificial intelligence. So is that being used? Uh, you know, yeah. employ, employers measuring, I, I'm so not in the job market. So, yeah. you know. I, I love just dropping that into casual conversation. It sounds like so very minority report mind. there. What to totally is. I mean, there's, some, there's, a, there's a handful of companies doing work like this. Um, there's one called Pymetrics that, is one of the more almost benign where they use game playing as a way to screen applicants. But it's the same idea. What they're trying to do is see how people interact with their with the games they've developed to build personality profiles about them. So it's not just about how they perform in the game, but like what decisions they make and they read from that. But there's another company, HireVue, that's much spookier. They point uh, like you sit in front of your webcam and uh, in addition to like watching your eye movements and listen and, and watching your facial expressions, it's uh, detecting your tone, your voice, your tone of voice and your word choices. And, um, and they use like magnification to see your pulse just so they can tell what your heart rate is. And they, they put all of this into a model of human behavior and make predictions about successful job candidates based on this model. And, you know, they claim it's, you know, incredibly effective and, you know, blah, 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 blah. But it's, 
I mean, yeah, it's it's, it's scary shit. It's 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 you're, you're right. It's like it's it's so invasive. It's it's um, it's using AI as a mind reader. That's what they're trying to do. Right. So they're trying right. to break down this last barrier that individuals can have against um, you know the encroaching power of like the of big companies like that, where like you can keep your thoughts in your head, right? Like maybe they can yeah. read your emails and and you know look at your social media posts or whatever, but like your thoughts right. should be able to stay in your head. No, that's not good enough. No, no. I well, I mean, enough. immediately I thought, okay, actuaries from hell. Um, <laughs> eugenics naturally oh, came to mind, you know, for sure. And then my, my, my conclusion based on what you just said was that this sounds like a great way for companies to hire sociopaths, yeah. um, because anybody who can trick that system is almost right. certainly a sociopath. Right. Absolutely. Like if you can, if you can just like, you know, bluff your way through any of that, not show any sort of nervousness, um, choose only the most precise wording for everything yeah i mean yeah. It, eugenics is not is not a an, isn't is not an inapt metaphor in fact um some fo folks have called this algorithmic eugenics it's like it, it essentially is like skull skull measuring right like like you you set up some sort of model of what the ideal employee is and then that's your model and then but then nobody you're not really asking the question like well, why is that your model like does that th would, your model wouldn't happen to be pretty white and pretty male and mm. you know, uh, would it, it right <laughs> yeah. wow and it, turned, and it turns out often the case uh, it is yeah that that is potentially even more frightening than than the main topic that that i invited you to talk about well we could and, and in a certain way we do come back to 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 i think a related subject but let's let's dive in and talk a little bit about facebook and the oversight board and of course that's you know, should be should be understood as sort of a, a a reference point for a broader conversation that I guess most people file under the heading of, of platform responsibility, which isn't the probably the best expression to kind of encompass what we're what we're describing. But you know, I began this by talking about the article that Kate Klonick wrote in the New Yorker and her expose of of what's known as the Facebook Oversight Board which some people are calling the Facebook Supreme Court because of course they're allegedly going to have you know it's composed of a bunch of high octane intellectuals and they're going to have autonomy to make decisions and sort of write a set of principles and they'll have uh, authority even over Zuckerberg himself uh, so I guess my first question to you is sort of a two-parter, part one being whether you think this is just ethics washing, basically, on Facebook's part. Um, and part two would be if if it is serious, if Facebook's intentions here are sincere, um, you know, can a board like this be effective in a way that uh, that has benefits? Um, and, and I guess that begs the, the sort of B question of what those benefits might be. Yeah, so this is, I mean, this is such an interesting case and such an interesting experiment. And I'm really glad that uh, Kate Klonick is writing about it. Um, um, so this raises a whole a whole host of issues. So first one I think we need to confront is what it reveals about the power that companies like Facebook have amassed over our discourse and interaction. It, it's immense, right? And in my, to my mind, it's power they, they don't deserve and um, don't really seem to know what to do with. I mean, they're they're trying to, you know, trying to they're trying to figure it out. But it's an uphill battle. It has been an uphill battle for them. Um, while I imagine that most of your listeners are, are pretty well informed about this, most people don't even know that the big platforms um, filter out content or do much at all to shape 
what you see, but they do a great deal of that. Um, and so for most of their history uh, in that kind of work, Facebook in particular has only really cared about what they considered objectionable content. So pornography, violence, and of course, um, you know, blatantly illegal stuff. And now we see them finally grudgingly acknowledging that they have a role in political discourse and it's a very serious role. But at the end of the day, just like in their earlier acts, all they really, all they really care about is, is what is all any giant corporation care, cares about is, is the bottom line. Um, they're trying to do more because of the threat to their revenue and also the threat of regulation. And this is to say, yes, they're, I think they're serious, but not because they care about, about you and me or about democracy or about those kinds of things. The, the, what, this long caveat about you know, their seriousness being more or less revenue driven flows into the question of whether the board will, can actually be effective. And the answer I would say, as it so often is, is it depends, right? It depends on whether they are willing to let an oversight board make decisions for the company, like really overrule Zuck, like they say, um, if those decisions negatively affect revenue. And no matter what they say, that seems very unlikely to me, or at least that there is a, there's, there's a red line that the board will not be able to cross. And so, and, and we haven't, maybe we haven't seen it yet, but I think it will appear. And so I'm not terribly optimistic. Um, there's a telling example of, of the limits of this kind of effort. And I point to the recent, um, a recent controversy at Google, um, where, they re where they recently they, they uh, fired uh, members of their ethical AI research team when um, some of their members, uh, in particular, a researcher named Timnit Gebru, spoke up about the company's failure, failure to address um, like race and, and gender discrimination. Um, and so, so they were fine with having a research team focused on ethics and, and telling the world about their, their commitment uh, to ethics and, and hiring these, these prominent, you know, uh, you know, well-known researchers who were focused on these, these questions until the findings, the work of these researchers came into conflict with companies, the company's priorities. So, I mean, I hope that the Facebook board fares better, but there are a number of cautionary tales that suggest that it's it's just impossible when when you're when you're a company in the business of business, but you your side effect is the potential destruction of you know democracy. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to bring those two things into some sort of into some sort of harmony that that will you know that that, that will be successful. But fingers crossed. You know. Well, you definitely raise one challenge, I think, um, with regard to Facebook's oversight board. Which makes me want to ask, are they trying to invent a wheel that can't be invented here? You know, you raise a natural point, which is that, of course, what happens when the board uh, makes decisions or makes recommendations that are contrary to Facebook's revenue stream? And I think we all have reason to be highly skeptical about that. Um, but it, but I think another issue that has come to the foreground is, of course, that Facebook's revenue, any of these platforms' revenue, has been partly based on a presumption of neutrality. Um, and in fact, even the, the, the act of neutrality, you know, forever they have traded on that premise that we're neutral, people get to say what they want, we're not in the business of judging what is truth and what is not truth. Uh, Zuckerberg has said that many times. And of course, it has nothing to do with altruism and everything to do with the fact that why lose market share? Uh, if you don't have to, right? If if half the market of your users 
are saying crazy conspiracy stuff, eh, you know, at least they're using the platform. They, they spend money too. They can be advertised to as well. That's really, I think we all know that that's really what, what that's about. But of course, then along comes 2016. And I thought, here we go. They're going to face a crisis because now suddenly misinformation and not just political spin, but real misinformation is about to become the official word of the White House. And we saw, we've, you know, we saw Donald Trump not only state things that are just factually incorrect and in some cases potentially dangerous, like bad medical information, but also inciting, uh, as we saw Facebook dither about whether it should take down Donald Trump's when the looting starts, the shooting starts comment during the George Floyd protests. Uh, and suddenly neutrality is clearly not an option anymore for these platforms in a moment like that. So then if neutrality is not an option, I think the question is whether or not they're willing to just go ahead and lose some market share uh, in order to enforce the standards they claim to want to enforce. Yeah. So, I mean, what you're tapping into there is is like a larger social problem that I think has been really revealed and really brought to the surface, particularly in light of the the George Floyd and, um, uh, uh, you know, protests and so on over the summer. And um, there's been a lot of elevation of critical race and, um, you know, feminist theory about, uh, about the, about how we view information and how we view truth. And one of the, one of the great things that social media has brought to us has been the elevating of voices that were formerly silenced. Agreed. Um, right. So hearing from women, people of color, immigrants, gender minorities, I mean, these are voices that, that weren't really making it into, into my you know, regular day-to-day narrative. And now they're, they've taken root in, in mainstream um, narratives that, you know, were really unlikely to hear some of the, some of these voices and, and, and perspectives. All right. Um, and so I, I can't, I can't look away from the, the social good that that has, has produced. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, it's also like the ability for people to convene on issues of politics have created political, um, thinking or have, have fermented, fermented political thinking in people who might not have bothered in the past. Um, so I, I just want, I just want to foreground that, that, you know, that the, there are some positives here, but at the same time, I am definitely of the mind that it's one of those, you know, we we're very, we very much cherish this idea of, of an objective media and a, and a, and a neutral and neutral spaces in which to exchange ideas. And these are not, bad instincts but as many people will point out that, that ne- what neutrality really is or uh, is is typically a way of it, it, it neutrality means status quo and when the status quo is acceptable or at least acceptable to enough people then maybe neutrality is the appropriate term of art to use but generally speaking it, there's always somebody who is actually quite oppressed by the status quo, you know, racial discrimination, misogyny, violence of one sort or another. Um, and so then neutrality isn't, isn't actually not neutral to them. It's harmful to them, right? It's, it's not, it's not serving their interests at all. It's serving the interests of people who already hold power. And so in like racial justice circles, um, like talk of neutrality is, is actually, is, it's quite offensive because really what you're saying is, you know, the, the harms that are happening, happening to people are, are, can go on as they, as they do, as long as we, we can't upset, we can't upset the apple cart, you know, and stir the pot and so on. But the way Zuckerberg has responded 
to this, and, and he's not alone, but he's been very prominent, you know, giving speeches at Georgetown Law School and so on about the value of the First Amendment and so on, as if he, as if he you know, as if he finished college, right? <laughs> like he didn't, he didn't even finish college. Anyway, but I mean, I like to call like Zuckerberg's approach his First Amendment fig leaf. Um, because, because, you know, he, he loves to claim that, that Facebook is in the business of, you know, free speech and community and being an open forum and so on. And this works in part because, like you said, they really don't want to manage political speech. It's, mm -hmm. it's third rail stuff. They'll get attacked no matter what they do. And they have to watch their flanks from potential action by unhappy government officials. All you have to do is watch those, you know, absurd um, Senate hearings, congressional hearings, um, where politicians were much more concerned about, you know, some Nazi propaganda content that Facebook took down than on the fact that they, you know, that, that they're, they're actually promoting uh, Nazis and, uh, you know, and violence against uh, marginalized people. So, I mean, I think that when, when, when Zuckerberg in particular makes these speeches and so on, I'm claiming about the space being neutral and so on, it's at best naive and at worst, very cynical. Like I mentioned already, Facebook already spends a lot of uh, energy and computing resources shaping what you see on the platform. They don't just show you everything. They show you what they want you to see. It's not the equivalent of a town square. The whole algorithm is designed to prioritize content that promotes user engagement and produces revenue, full stop. It's not designed to promote democracy. It's designed to produce revenue, right? That's the end, that's, that's the end goal. So, you know, free expression, it's a, it's a great term, it's a cherished value, but it's also in the case of the platforms, a convenient excuse, excuse for doing um, really the bare minimum to rein in the actual Nazis and other haters on their platforms. Um, now, like I said, I don't, I don't envy that they have this work to do. I don't think anybody would, um, but they have to make hard choices because otherwise it turns out that their power is now so vast over our discourse. If they do nothing, we are likely going to see civil society disintegrate because of how their platforms operate. Um, again, I wish they didn't have this power um, and the obligations that go with it, but they do. Um, they haven't demonstrated you know, any sort of the erudite philosopher king-like understandings of the world that their platforms mediate uh, that would really make this, you know, uh, you know, an easy task or even a, a trustworthy task. But, but here we are, they, they have this power and they have to, they're going to have to grow into it and deal with it um, because the stakes are just, are just too high for them to try to retreat behind the, the neutrality, behind the fig leaf. Are you, are you saying that move fast and break things is not a philosophy? <laughs> that's right yeah I, well and i only i only half i only half am half joking when i say that because you know philosophy in that regard has, has really been replaced by corporate buzzwords in this yeah. in this regard and and silicon valley is full of them and another one and this is this gets to my the the sort of core of my own cynicism about social media in this context which is connecting people is a very nice sounding, pretty concept. It sounds very beautiful. And they ran on that principle for a very, very long time. And when anybody who said, hey, you know, you're not just connecting, you know, these people over here who might want to, you know, give money to a GoFundMe campaign and help that family over there, that's lovely. And it's wonderful. And it's unquestionably enabled by these, you know, these intermediaries. But then a few other people were saying, yeah, but you're also connecting some very toxic 
groups. QAnon is currently probably the apotheosis of that. And there will be another, you know, when it dies, there'll be another one to replace it. You know, for, for many years, it was shut up. The platforms are doing wonderful things. Leave them alone. Let them do what they want. And then as some of these troubles began to bubble to the surface and make it into the mainstream media, it seemed like the, the answers were, well, let's try to put some of the genie back in the bottle. We can, we can tweak this machine a little bit. Um, we, we see defectors like Tristan Harris come out and say, I've got the solutions. We can, we can adjust them. You know, I've got the right dials we can turn on this machine to make it nicer and friendlier and better. Um, I am a complete cynic about that. I think that Ultimately, what social media has done is exacerbate some of the worst aspects of human nature and that you can't put that back in the bottle. Um, that maybe part of the, this conversation, maybe it does, but maybe this conversation needs to employ more people from the psychology field um, and that there's an extent to which we just have to sort of learn to live with these platforms and understand that they have some good qualities, but that their toxicity doesn't get fixed. We just learn to live within that toxicity and how to manage it for ourselves. Well, I have some bad news for you. They, they already actually, they are actually already employ like armies of psychologists in social media companies. Sure. Just not, just not to do what, just not to do what you were hoping. <laughs> I, I, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah. It's like the whole thing is a vast social experiment and we're all the guinea pigs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you raise a really important point here. I mean, first of all, you know, it's it, voices like Tristan Harris's are, are, are important voices um, because some people like Harris know a great deal about how the sausage is, is made. And so they have a certain amount of expertise that they can offer about how to make it differently. The problem with voices with people like Harris is that they are, their hands are dirty. Like there, it was there, it was people like Harris who, who, um, and a lot, and a lot of other people who appeared in the social dilemma who were in the tech companies building the tools of our, our current social media dystopia who are now saying like, oh, but I know the answer. But they, they knew the answer before, which was to create the social media dystopia. So now we're supposed to just, you know, stay in the, you know, stay in the car that are driving 100 miles an hour down the down the freeway and you know potentially down the, the wrong lane or whatever. Um, and trust them that they can actually solve a problem that they had a hand in, in, in creating. I mean, I think there's really has to be a, a different strategy, which is not to say we should just dismiss them. But I think we need to put their comments and suggestions in, you know, and bracket them into uh, sort of the appropriate context. Um, right. There's a famous saying, um, and I'm very bad because I'm going to forget. A famous, famous black feminist scholar said that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And what that means and how that I think applies very well to the technology platforms yeah. is to think that you can somehow dismantle the power and of, of giant corporations and giant technology companies using their tools is is naive like at, again at the moment that they see the pitchforks and the torches coming down their the alleyway that they built towards right. their towards the mansion that they live in they will they will make it all go away and um you know i share your concern about what what social media appears to reveal about human nature and humanity um and it does seem that maybe the way humans work, that there must be like a middle ground between folks being isolated in our little containers, like perhaps we were before social media, um, and versus being like stuck into the middle of a vortex of oversharing and instant attention that's available to us at any time of the day or night. 
Um, but and it might be that we're just not really meant to interact with each other using only um, language of like hot takes and self-righteous broadsides, which are so which are really like the you know the main lingua franca of, of social media platforms. But I also think it has to do with the design of social media that taps into some of our basest desires. Uh, so for example, um, like you and I could go to a house party and derive a lot of satisfaction from the attention that we could get by you know, being charming and funny or whatever, or just being engaging with other people um, and, and so on. Um, but, uh, and, and we can do this without resorting to conspiracy theories or becoming Nazis, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, some people will do that. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know about the parties you attend, but <laughs> all right. Generally speaking, you know, getting a broad brush <laughs> over most of the parties, right? But um, if, if, but if we only had like one tiny chance to get attention from an enormous venue, like the kind of attention that was impossible, you know, 20 years ago to get, you know, for most people, <laughs> you know, we're lucky if we like, I'm an academic, I'm lucky if like, you know, 10 people read my the paper that I spend, you know, you know, uh, three months writing, right. or the, the 20 people who if I'm lucky show up when I present the paper at a conference, and are not busy looking at their phones or whatever, you know, they're actually paying attention, like, it's really very few people actually get access to the big platform of attention and, um, and, and scale that social media potentially provides. Um, and, but, but we only get like our one moment, we only get our, like our, you know, our, our 10 seconds to, to be, to be seen, to stand out from the crowd. And in that kind of venue, the temptation to behave badly is, is pretty strong. Mm -hmm. Social media provides an environment that really only operates if you stand out, if you jump up and down and, and draw attention to yourself in a way that would not be appropriate in the other kinds of social settings that we typically find ourselves. And so I think it may be more of a design problem than a humanity problem. I mean, the mm. design exploits a potential weakness in our humanity, which is our, our love of attention. People do mm. love attention, right? But I think that in our, our human scale environments, we're able to mitigate that that love of attention with our desire not to be seen as assholes. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Well, on social media, this, that's that latter piece just goes out the window. Like, <laughs> you know, like and and so then that I mean that's where the conspiracy theory stuff comes. And then of course there's a lot of other stuff. And people, this has been documented for a long time that in that modern the modern society in general on and off social media is is a society of anxiety like there's a lot of things to worry about mm -hmm. and our media including you know predating social media has brought more of it more and more of it home to us about how right. potentially right. powerless we are and how potentially corrupt uh, the political establishment is and how how much our lives are ruled by you know money and corporations and so on sure so it, it causes people to retreat into some pretty dark places and so that so then you can reach you know they're e more easily reached with things like conspiracy theories or, right. or or scapegoating and so on sure i mean this is not to forgive people outright for for being QAnon believers i mean i just i you know there's a point where where people are just dumb and they just need to stop doing that stuff well but i think there's you know there's an an intersection there in the sense that you know you're right there, it's a it's a human trait to want attention um, and then, of course, there's the way that the social media platforms are organized and designed um, to to reward that. Um, and then it is it has the unfortunate quality of being information based, 
right? It's like, if you're, if, if you're starting out right now, tomorrow on Facebook for the first time, what am I going to say? Well, maybe you'll say something of your own or no, maybe you'll share something you just found, you just mm-hmm. learned. And that thing will get, may get a reaction and it might be complete, utter gibberish. Um, and as we know, then the feedback loop starts, right? And then you begin to, you know, you'll get positive feedback from the people who also believe that crazy thing you just posted and negative feedback from the people who don't, um, both of which will feed that, yeah. that, that, that you know, that two base, sides that, of your psychology there. That base desire, right. And they, um, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, so, well, I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to interrupt, but I, I but OK, I will. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's you're, you're the guest. Go ahead. OK, great. Um, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I mean, again, like, like, you know, we have base desires and, and I, the question is, what are, what is the, what is the scaffolding of the world around us that keeps us from enacting on all of them, right? Like, like we have sexual desires, we have, um, you know, desires to get intoxicated. We have desires to be lazy. We have, we have all sorts of desires that are, you know, we might call unvirtuous, you know, and it, it varies in various, and sometimes they're virtuous or sometimes unvirtuous, depending on, on the, on the context. Uh, and the question is whether or not we, we're, const- we live in a world that we have constructed with each other, right? So it's not, it, you know, it's, it's somewhat, some of it is, is handed to us, but a lot of it is we just construct with each other, like in our families, for example, or even our local communities, we try to construct environments in which I mean, at the end of the day, we are less likely to pursue our most base desires and more likely to pursue our more virtuous, patient and inclusive desires. Like that's tends to be what people who live together try to do. They where we set aside like our, our instincts to, to behave badly and just get just to focus me, 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 me. I want, I want, I want, you know, want my own things mm. um, to be more cooperative and to and to participate in, in the world around us in a constructive manner. And I just think that. Social media, again, you know, I mean, now they employ armies of, of psychologists. It's, it's <laughs> true, but they didn't start that way. Like yeah. they started with like, you know, and they literally did start in dorm rooms and so on. And even the ones that didn't start in dorm rooms, they didn't exactly start in, you know, with with careful, deep thought about how they might, how, how they might exploit base desires. And even when they thought like, oh, we're going to make a bunch of money because we're exploiting base desires. They also didn't take the next step of thinking like, well, that's fine if only like we only have 10,000 users or whatever, you know, we're just we're just making money exploiting people's base desires, just like strip clubs and, you know, alcohol companies do or whatever, and cigarette manufacturers. Um, but to take it to the next extent of like, well, the entire world is given this tool in which they can exploit their base desires. How will that work out? You know, I mean, that's <laughs> an, that might be the experiment we're, 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 we're undergoing right now. But I but I um, but I this is a long way around of saying that even though I, I also just said that this is something we construct ourselves, some of this is constructed for us. Like we right. are born into the world as it is. And we arrive at social media the way it has been built. And we don't have any control over how social media is built. And in particular, social media, again, going back to my earlier um, you know, tirade, it is designed to promote user engagement and to produce revenue. And those are first and foremost what it's about. I mean, Sophia Noble wrote a whole book about how Google search should not be mistaken as an information resource, but always needs to be understood as an advertising platform. Search results are in the service of that 
business mission. And when you understand that, you start to understand why sometimes search results are very problematic you know, and, <laughs> and racist and, and, and who knows all what else. You know, it's not just an accident of like, oh, that's what everybody clicks on. It's, it, it's built into the culture of how the thing was built. It was built to serve a, cer a certain purpose. And in the service of that purpose, it is willing to, you know, throw other sorts of public interest um, uh, concerns uh, under, under, under its wheels on, on right. its path towards yeah. revenue. Well, that makes me want to insert a question here that I, that I didn't plan, which is your, your instincts about how aware people are about some of these hazards and the, the nature of social media. Because I think some awareness has certainly increased from, say, four years ago, when I think nobody was really talking about this. And now I will see friends share either their own observations or others about, you know, how, say, like the, the social dilemma or whatever, they'll, they'll share what they've learned about what some of the problems are in these systems. Um, nevertheless, nobody's leaving. So, and this again goes back to the fact that these, that the, that we live in certain structures that we are as individuals are powerless to change. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I care about things like food justice, for example, and I, I, I'm very, I try to be very thoughtful about where my food comes from and emphasize, you know, small producers, um, humane practices, sustainable practices, and so on. But I can't choose that all the time, right? I, I you know, sometimes the, the the food I get on my plate is just is what's handed to me, or what's available, or what I can afford, right? And uh, and so I don't I didn't build the system. I can try to advocate um, for its improvement or and betterment and so on. And I think that many fine people are doing that. Um, but I but I didn't build it. And I think the same is true uh, of social media. The, the fact is that um, we can object to it. We can even refuse to use it. I, I can, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not entirely off social media, but I have a very limited social media diet. And I just feel, I, feel, I, I do it mainly because I feel better <laughs> by, by reducing my, my presence on social media. Um, not because I think that my refusing to use this or that social media platform is actually going to harm them or actually going to change them. Uh, that that's that's probably asking a lot, but the 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 but I in, in a way like that lets me know it's a signal that we're 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 somewhat trapped into using them. Um, you and I are old enough to know that there was a time before social media, when people <laughs> like you know had other ways of connecting with each other. And while not all of those have gone away, I mean people still talk on the phone and still send letters and so that but that kind of activity has has diminished a great deal. And and hundreds or even thousands of other types of uh, of like communication and social act activities that were normal 20, 30 years ago or so yeah. on have really um, withered because people uh, uh, can more, more easily do those things on social media and they can reach more people and stay in touch with more relatives who are, you know, stay, who are farther away and friends and so on. And they can join affinity groups of people that they didn't even know they had affinities with and so on. Right. Of course, that of course that can turn into Nazism, but whatever. You know, people can join exactly. Can, you know, you know, sewing circles, Nazis. You know, um, uh, and that and, and that's been a tremendous benefit to a lot of people. A lot of people who were who would formerly have the, the choice only of being uh, isolated from people because of where they live and and just the conditions of their lives now have a, a, a way to connect with other people, and it's probably good for them. Um, but, uh, I, I guess what I'm getting around to saying is that even for folks who do have options, 
in order to really, in order to not use social media platforms, you'd have to convince everybody you know and love to also not use right. those platforms. Right. And so, so we're trapped because like that's all of our habits now are to use these things. And so we can't really just walk away and pretend that they're, they're useless. They're not. Well, and that, that comes back to a question I was going to ask later, but I'll ask it now because it's, it's where we are. Um, and, and it relates to the, to our first conversation about employers use of AI, right? Which is, can especially as you mentioned you mentioned that we're old which is true um but let's say the generation the two generations now behind us i guess one of the questions is realistically can they get off social media are people going to be penalized in the future from either job opportunities or other opportunities for not having a social platform yeah i mean that's uh that's an excellent question and the answer is you're onto something there when I was researching um, various uh, like AI slash technology enhanced employment companies and their platforms, um, there are there are a few that are for like there there you know there there are people offering technology in at all in, in all steps of the recruiting you know sourcing and so on hiring process because it's you know, there's a lot of work to be done there and people are really drawn to using technology to automate as much of that as possible. And there's one that I looked at, which in which you see a dashboard of all of the people that are your finalists for your position with that are color coded, right. To show like, who was like, you know, got some red flags and yellow flags, green flags. And this is all from everything like reviewing the resume to how, you know, what kind of scores people gave on like live interviews. And if maybe if they had an automated AI interview and, you know, all sorts of things that can feed into these kinds of dashboards, one of them. And for one of these companies, I can't remember which company it was, it might've been Intello. Um, you know, they mentioned things about how part of what they can do is they can go out and their system can automatically look for social media profiles for your job candidates and pull in some of the content from their news feeds and so on. If it's, you know, if it can be accessed and even analyze it and do, you know, and give you some analysis of it. And it's obvious when you read between the lines of how these things work, that your failure to have a social media profile, if a system is going out and looking for it, is like failing to have any credit. It's like failing, like, yeah. when you, like have never had a credit card or, or never seemed to have opened a bank account. It's a, it's, it's not just a red flag. It's like, it's a, it's confusing because you're so obviously out of the mainstream that right. the only option is to, uh, is to evaluate you under a criteria that they're not using for everybody else. And so of course the easiest way to, to do that is to not evaluate you at all is <laughs> to leave you out of the evaluation. Cause that's, that's extra work. So, I mean, the, the, the short answer is, um, uh, yes, I think that, that people who refuse to use social media are potentially, um, for, for certain kinds of jobs, for sure, are putting themselves at risk of, uh, of, of sending, sending a signal, sending a negative signal, sending a signal that they're weird, they're hiding something. That's the big one, that you must be hiding something if you're not on social media. Um, or otherwise, that you're just, not, just, you're just not revealing enough information <clears throat> that people are now habituated to having it's like refusing to provide your last name on your you know, on your job application or something right right um, and that is a problem and i um i mean i'm i i read something this is now some years ago and this is not even social media necessarily but that 80 percent of employers i don't know if this means only large employers but 80 something like 80 percent of employers just like some micro uh, research conducted by microsoft 80 percent of employers search for information about job candidates online and that can be as little as you know popping somebody's name into a Google search, which a lot of people do. Right. Um, 
to using a service that goes out and you know scrapes all the social media and so on and, and conducts an analysis. I mean, this is actually is becoming quite commonplace, and sure. uh, and it's really troubling because, you know, again, we don't have any we don't have any control over like the social media environment. Right. And in theory, we're all the masters of our own behavior, et cetera. But we've just talked about the fact that like maybe we're not. <laughs> maybe we're, right. You yeah. know that we're like operating in a in a place where you know some, our base desires are revealed, and this is these are. This is behavior and activity that employers before this information, before our lives were lived online and were so mediated by information technologies, they just didn't have access to. You know, you could you called somebody's you know references and you, yeah. Yeah. you, know, you interviewed them and talked to them and so on, and you got a read on them. Now, does that was that fair? You know, that employers had to take the risk that there was all this information about you that was just, you know, under the surface, if only they could access it. I mean, I, it really depends on whose interests you think are more important? Is it, is yeah. the employer's interest more important or right. some privacy and personal autonomy? Is, is yeah. that is that important? And how do we balance those? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would think the answer to that particular one is, is, uh, is data, right? I mean, if, if you, if you looked at pre digital age employment and productivity and all the things you would want to measure, you know, and the amount of attrition that you had due to say employees that, whatever didn't work out because yeah. they they were incompetent or whatever you know and then compare that managers? yeah exactly yeah. so it, you'd have to factor for all those different things and then and then compare that to the to the present and get similar data and but anyway that's that's quite a digression but it it, it does raise the issue that um you know that the as you mentioned these companies are extremely powerful not just because they're wealthy and not just because they manage uh, all the all the data on the planet, um, but that as as we just discussed, there's an extent to which you can't completely opt out, and that raises the question of power. Um, back in 2014, I wrote this blog post mocking uh, a redditor, one of Reddit's lead editors, because he referred to the platform as a nation. Hmm. Um, and this was back when, if you remember, there were a bunch of leaked nudes of celebrities and of course reddit had multiple you know uh subreddits with the where they were sharing the photos and it took reddit forever to come to the ethical decision to just take them down um because god forbid and and of course we've seen this many times with with platforms that sort of oh we finally took it down and they kind of wring their hands about oh my god you know what have i done to the first amendment and this is the day the internet dies um because because i've taken something off um and and that was when he re, you know he he referred to reddit as this nation but behind mocking him uh is a legit fear because i think that as as kate clonic alludes to in her article there's an extent to which these companies are becoming almost government-like in their in their influence and their scope. Um, what do you have to say about that? <laughs> See, yeah. That is a well, a terrifying I mean, thought. It is, and I don't think you're not you're not wrong to be concerned about that. Uh, in fact, uh, Kit Klonick wrote another piece, a much longer piece, a law review piece, uh, a few years ago, um, uh, about how the social media platforms are taking on the trappings of governments in their content moderation policies and strategies. And it's called something like um, the new governors is what is the title of the piece, right? It's very unsubtle. Um, so 
you know, just to know, like this, this oversight board is not, it didn't spring out of nothing. In addition to the, to this board, a lot, a lot of the social media companies have tried out all sorts of tribunals and hearing processes to figure out, to, to weigh issues about which content should be shown and whether or not you can, um, you know, appeal a decision for something of yours to have been taken down and get it restored and so on. And they, they, they carry out these processes and they think through them with, you know, sort of like due process and evidentiary rules and so on, um, as if they were carrying out the rule of law. But this is all, of course, kind of troubling because even while, even if they can convincingly imitate governments and if they're the trappings of power and so on seem to give them the type of power and authority that as, as if they were governments, they're not accountable to anybody. They're, or at least they're far less accountable than the types of governments we tend to prefer. There is typically little transparency about how these tribunals and boards operate. And of course, we can't vote anyone in or out of uh, positions of power who, who make the decisions. Um, and so, I mean, my feeling is if it's true that they, they operate like governments and even, even, if they, even if they're bold enough to claim that they are little governments, they aren't governments I want to be ruled by. I mean, they're, they're, they're essentially dictatorships, you know, and um, I mean, it's nice to, to think that you're, that you've convened such a community that's so independent and in some ways transnational and therefore detached from sort of traditional um, societal constructs and barriers and so on. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's all, all well and good, but you really you have to ask the next question then, well, what kind of, what kind of nation are you building? It's, you know, it's not enough to just be a nation. Like, are you a nation of, of justice or are you, a, or are you a, just a nation of free for all, you know, come as you are, publish nudes, commit violence, um, you know. This is, it's a big one for me because, uh, you know, my part of my cynicism about the digital utopianism, right? Yeah. It, it comes from, um, comes from the fact that it, it it seemed, especially several years ago, like a lot of people were treating the internet and social media. If you remember, everybody was leak happy for a while, right? WikiLeaks and and all that. And and not that I am a am opposed to exposing information uh, when that information is relevant and contextualized and teaches us something. And if it's exposing a scandal, so be it. Um, but there was there was this ebullience about leaking, if it seemed as though. And I thought, okay, everybody is so absolutely cynical about government, not without reason, <laughs> sometimes, not without reason any number of times. But the point is, my point being that when you reach a, a degree of cynicism about the workings of government to the point that you abandon the actual government and think, oh, I've got this substitute for it called Facebook or Google, or YouTube, you've done two things. One, you've abandoned being a participant in the republic that you had. <laughs> and at the same time, you have ceded authority to this ersatz government we call Google or Facebook or Twitter. And, and so my concern was okay we're you know we we have we have some history for this right when the when the age of the robber barons and the railroads controlled all the means of production of distribution until the Hepburn Act came along and and regulated that you know you you owed your soul to the railroad if you wanted goods and services and to get anywhere um we have that only multiplied a millionfold with with some of these systems because they're not just 
they're not just search engines and advertising vehicles. They're also controlling the data flow that controls a lot of basic systems in our society. They control medical information. They control all sorts of information. And eventually, more and more in transportation going forward, for example. And so one of my concerns is that we end up, and, and I think to a certain extent, we're partway there, um, we end up in a state that I call technological feudalism, mm. right? In, in, the, in the service of trying to expose the corruption in our democratic republic, we've jumped out of the frying pan and into the, the fire of these, of these feudal lords. I think it's really telling. I mean, you've really hit on something there too. I mean, I think it's really telling that, you know, I think a, a healthy, a healthy cynicism or a healthy um, incredulity about the workings of government has been weaponized as a means of basically shifting power from one enormous potential boogeyman, the government, to another mm-hmm. enormous potential boogeyman, actually pretty obvious boogeyman, uh, you know, companies like Facebook. It's actually really always kind of... Um, like boggled my mind to see how quickly people are ready to attack, um, especially in this space, like privacy invasion, for example, when it comes from government, like the government's reading my email, the government's tapping my phone, the government's, people are so quick to be concerned about that. Oh man, the you know, the, vac- the vaccine's gonna contain a tracker so the government can fa- you know, follow me around and they're gonna be tracking me everywhere with, you know, with, their, with their vaccine, 5G, whatever. And meanwhile, everybody's carrying a phone in their pocket, right? That is like the greatest surveillance device that anybody has ever you know, conceived of because it, right. it knows where you are all the time. It knows, it knows everything about you, it knows, it knows your heart rate, your sleep pattern. But, uh, but at the same time, people are not as quick to, uh, to question what companies know about them and what, company, what companies do. For some reason, and I, this is a very American thing in particular, but also, I mean, I'm seeing it now that I live in, in England and the UK. Um, it's similar in very like advanced capitalist countries. There is a sort of great belief uh, in, in, uh, in enterprise, in, in business enterprises and what businesses can do. And I mean, I guess, you know, in the U.S. context, for example, look at the great wealth of the United States. We, you know, some some people might argue, well, that's from military plunder of, you know, overseas fortunes. And others would say, no, it's because of our, you know, great culture of innovation and and can-doism and so on. And, um, and so those things are, those qualities are admirable. And I think that's one reason why people set aside or, or, or mute down their, their concerns about what companies do. But the wealth of these companies is really is very concerning. I'm I'm very concerned about it. Um, I I'd like, it, and I think it's indicative of, of, of a systemic and historical trend. It's not just Facebook and Twitter and Amazon that have amassed these enormous fortunes. Um, again, going back to how old we are, you and I are actually old enough that we can point to to a fairly recent history measured in decades. Um, where corporations did not have the kind of wealth and power that they have now. And not just social media or technology companies, but like financial services companies and so on that are now, you know, multinational and just, and have and control an enormous amount of the world's uh, flows of capital. Um, And so when you think about how much power they have, like Apple alone, I was looking this up before our, uh, before our our chat, their market value. And this was like in 2019 is something like $1.3 trillion. Mm -hmm. And the market capital, whatever market cap value of the country of Australia is mm-hmm. $1.4 trillion. So yeah. like, you know, think about that, right? Like we're, we're talking about a single company that is, that is almost as wealthy as Australia. And that kind of money, obviously, I mean, it, there's no question it gives them tremendous 
political leverage. Sure. And so at the same time, while people are have this tremendous distrust of their political institutions, the companies who are amassing more and more power through this and somehow sometimes exploiting that are also exploiting the weakening political institutions, these institutions that are weakening because, because of the trust that is eroding away from them right. towards the companies. And so they actually are performing <clears throat> more poorly. The post office does perform badly. The passport office does perform badly. And so, you know, if you, if you starve a thing long enough, it will perform very badly. And so your beliefs in, in it being evil and incompetent will, right. will, will come true. And there, and there, and meanwhile, all that competence, so on, seems to get transferred onto these companies. And it's hard not to look at a company like Amazon or a company like Google and not see success and, um, you know, innovative mastery and, and so on. Um, but at the same time, I just like, I, you, I think you really signaled something there where the companies actually are actively exploiting that. Yeah. And, and so they're driving what, again, I would say is a reasonable uh, level of suspicion or at least, you know, questioning of government power and, and using that to weaken governments and at the same time harvesting that power for themselves. And I think uh, one thing I think I really, you know, want to leave with, with is the idea that, that we need to resist calls for self-regulation because that's what we've been operating under. Self-regulation is, is, a, is a pipe dream. Um, like it's uh, platforms with this much power and this much influence, not just over uh, politics and whatever, but but over our day to day interactions, I mean, we wouldn't we wouldn't allow any anything else to operate with so little accountability. We don't we don't operate we don't allow the insurance industry to operate with so little accountability, and that is yeah. arguably an out of control and exploitative industry, right? But at least there is some sort of accountability, and there are restrictions, and you know maybe they're not maybe they're not enough, maybe they're not sufficient, but but they exist, and we haven't even begun to regulate social media. We haven't even right. made the thinnest attempts. And so, I mean, I really resist calls uh, for people to say, oh, you want to regulate it into something that'll be more fun or, or that'll shut down everybody's communication. Well, you know, that's, you know, that, that's great. There's a slippery slope out there somewhere. It's possible that if we, if we you know, if, we, if governments become uh, uh, overambitious in the regulation that they will actually shut down meaningful communication that, these, that the mediums yeah. provide. Um, but we haven't even started. We haven't even right. tried. They're experimenting on us every day, and we haven't even tried experimenting on them. Right. Well, I mean, since you went there, um, you know, I mean, the, the, what makes me cynical about that, at least in the United States, um, Europe is doing a little bit better. The EU, anyway, is doing a little bit better in terms of things like antitrust and and whatnot. There's, but is uh, at the moment, I, I'd be shocked if one could find enough consensus in say the u.s senate even to have that regulatory conversation right now because and and we saw it you know if you saw if you looked at the hearings the section 230 hearings that that was purely reactionary right it was all about donald trump it was every i know i'm sorry it was an antitrust hearing it wasn't even section oh. 230 it was an antitrust hearing oh, wow. the democrats talked about antitrust issues and all the Republicans wanted to talk about was censorship of conservative yeah. views, which never mind whether even if those were valid concerns, they're not an antitrust yeah. topic. That's not what they were there to talk about. And so, you know, I don't know. And, and I mean, going back to the January 6th thing, I mean, we're just at a point now when that narrative isn't even the same narrative 
yeah, for every American right now. So building consensus, you know, I, I worry that there's so much chaos and so much friction that what the signal was said, like in that antitrust hearing, I came away thinking, okay, well, what they just told Amazon and Facebook and Twitter was nothing will be done. Yeah, because there's no consensus in this room. Don't worry about it, guys. You're going to be fine. Yeah, that's a legitimate concern. Whenever I read about the popularity, whenever it's, it's mostly polling data that really alarms me the most. When they poll people, and they <clears> and they, there's still so many people who believe that the uh, the last presidential election was fraudulent, even though there's you know no evidence of any sort of fraud, and it was so closely watched, and and yet that narrative is not just you know a fringe narrative that, you know, people, you know, still hung up about the Kennedy assassination or whatever are, are, are trafficking in like a significant number of people who identify as Republicans believe that the Biden presidency was not, was not fairly won. And, and that's all because, you know, Trump said so, uh, because, yeah. you know, because, because uh, he just said it a few times, <clears throat> he said it enough times and, and, and people were willing to believe it. Um, but again, you know, that's not necessarily a social media problem. That is, Social media participates in a much larger set of political and um, social trends that right. have led us to a place where people are sort of seem to be tired of the um, of, of representative democracy and participatory democracy as we once understood it, and would really much prefer to be ruled over by what they would hope is a benevolent dictator or or a wise father or something like that. Now, now I know I don't particularly believe Trump meets any of those criteria but <laughs> but if you read what you read like the way people describe him the people who love trump the way they mm. love him and why they love him it's clear that they 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 view him completely differently than than you and i than you and i do and some of that could be definitely blamed on on the the atomized feeds of social media that like once you have enough people <clears throat> who believe that trump's the next messiah or the or the wise man right. on the hill and so on and and you're that's your affinity group and you follow that that can help to promote that but i think there's also something else going on where people really just wanted to give up people really want to give up the responsibility of managing the democracy they live in it's gotten too scary for them yeah. They, you know suddenly all the oppressed people are rising up and asking for rights and that's you know i don't know i guess that's too much for people or whatever and they're like well if i just back the the strong guy the the you know the the philosopher king of Donald right. Trump, whatever, right you know he'll make the problems go away and we can go back right. to you know 1950s america where everybody was happy and white yeah well i mean i think um i think it's a it's a sort of perfect storm scenario right i mean i think um, I do. There, there have been studies in, in, in both Europe and the United States about people tiring of democracy um, and, and not just among the boomers. I, I mean, I get that the boomers are tired. They're old. They were supposed right. to retire and shut up 25 yeah. years ago. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but even among younger people, the, the sort of faith in or understanding of of what it means to live in a, a, a democratic republic yeah. is is waning and we see signs of it. And, and I think that, uh, I don't think that social media caused that trend necessarily, but I think it was the perfect vehicle for exacerbating that trend. Um, and that's what I'm talking about when I, when I use the, the word consensus, because if we can't have even a consensus on what is real, yeah, you know, and I think the most telling thing is like, as you say, okay, you don't want to believe any authority. Fine. You've decided the news can't be trusted you've decided that but 60 courts yeah. right including the supreme court say 
no, the election wasn't stolen. Fake news. There's right. There's a point <laughs> at which there's a point at which you have just abandoned all faith in any expertise whatsoever. There is no authority. There's only and and your authority is this one guy who is who's like messianic for you. And this is the difference between social media and um, legacy media. Mm-hmm. Like like love it or hate it, when we all got our news from you know NBC Nightly News and you know, yep. the New York Times or the Washington Post. Um, it, it didn't mean that we were all getting the best news or the best mm-hmm. information, but because we were all getting the same information, there was a certain amount of consensus that, that, exactly. that formed around that. And right. um, I mean, and there, but there are a lot of periods of history we can point to that are like this, like, well, when the Catholic Church, you know, ruled over, you know, a huge dominion of, of Europe and everybody believed what the Catholic Church said, you know, it wasn't didn't necessarily work out very well for everybody. In fact, an awful lot of people worked out very, very badly for. Right. But there, you can get a lot done when people agree on a certain set of on a certain right. set of principles. Right. Um, we we want, of course, those principles to be the best principles they can possibly right. be. And I think what we see with social media is that it's impossible because social media is actually designed around fragmenting mm-hmm. and atomizing people into affinity groups so they can be more accurately targeted with advertising. Exactly. Um, so that and so that yeah, that dilutes the whole the whole mission of like getting everybody on the same page long enough sure. to get anything done. But the problem that we've achieved, not even split over principles, that's fine. That's always been the case. And, but we're, we're, we're split over realities, you know, going back to what you said about, about national news. Yes. I, you know, there's an extent to which uh, I've said it before that news was at its best in the United States when it was mandated by law and completely unprofitable. (laughs) You had three networks, then their news divisions didn't make any money. They had to run it because to to keep their licenses. And what did that lead to? It led to journalism. That's the only thing we got going for us is to be journalists because there's no reason not to be. And it was a relatively brief period for that. Yeah, it was a very brief period for that. You and I came of age in that period. Yes. Which is why Xers are uh are are pissed off that's right yeah, yeah. <laughs> stuck in the middle generation but yeah, we're, we're better informed than the boomers and we're more pissed off than the the generations have come past us because we know how things could have been exactly exactly <laughs> but but you know and that's part of the problem it's not it's not that we argue about what we should do it's that we're now at a point of arguing about what just happened yeah you know it's like a train ran into the side of a building no it didn't no it didn't no it didn't that didn't happen that that wasn't a train it's like no i we've got we saw the train we've got yeah yeah they're all paid yeah crisis actors so we get exactly so we can't even have a conversation about better train safety because it didn't happen yeah you know and so anyway, we're, we're well into cocktail hour in London and damn near cocktail hour in New York. I mean, oh my God. <laughs> but, um, but no, this has been great. This has been terrific. I really appreciate the conversation. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation, Dave. This has actually been really a lot of fun. Thank you so much. This has been episode two of the New Illusion of More podcast series. I'm David Newhoff. Thank you for listening.